I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Flyover from NPR News, a national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times. Today, as allegations and admissions of sexual misconduct roil the country, we're opening the phone lines to consider what this Me Too moment is saying about power and gender and identity. Now that women are emboldened to speak out about sexual harassment, changes are coming to the way we work, socialize, and interact. But upending social norms can be chaotic and uncomfortable. So as our guests join us today, I'd like to know what this moment feels like for you. If you're a woman, are you drawing strength and confidence about your value and your role in the workplace, no matter where you work? If it's in an office, in the service industry, in your own business, at the head of a company, if you're a woman of color, do you feel included in this moment? And men, what's the discussion been like for you among friends and colleagues? Does this feel like necessary change? So from women, I want to hear if you're feeling stronger, if you're drawing some strength from this moment, no matter where you work, no matter what kind of role you have in the workplace and in your personal life. Talk to us about that today. One eight three flyover one And men, what's this discussion sounded like for you? And what are you talking about with your friends and your colleagues? Does this feel like necessary change to you? One eight three flyover one You can also find me on Twitter. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Use the hashtag flyover radio. Our guest today, Tyon Coleman, is a professor of English literature at St. Kate's University, where she writes about feminism, power, and intersectionality. She's with me in the studio. Welcome. Good to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Jasmine Harris is the founder of the Hughes Company and a professor of sociology at Ursinus College. And she's with us today from Philadelphia. And Jasmine, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Ty, I think we have to acknowledge that while this this change has been necessary for years and years, the swiftness of it feels tumultuous and unsettled and pretty uncomfortable. What What have you been observing about the moment we've been in? I agree. Um, It is a definite paradigm shift. And I show up as a teacher, a mother, someone who's partnered. uh, But the paradigm shift is still reflective of those complexities that intersect that, where I still feel like women are trying to choose between their rights as uh, a woman or their politics, or we're not talking about it in terms of how it affects women of color and poor women in other intersections. So definitely it's a space, but there's still complexity. My hope is we can get through this without losing one another. Jasmine, uh, that's why I'm, I am specifically hoping to hear from some women in a lot of different echelons and positions in the workplace today. Do you feel like there are women for as as emboldened as empowered women are feeling, that there are women being left out of the discussion. Oh, certainly. Um, you know, one of the things that cannot be ignored about this hashtag Me Too movement is that it centers primarily around rich, powerful white men and white women specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are not doing a lot of talking about if this is happening at these levels, what must it be like for women in positions where they have much less power or access in jobs that they need to have in order to survive, as opposed to you know talking about um, potential actors or actresses who um, you know may be able to go and do something else, not that they necessarily should have to if they want. Um, 
we saw this with the time cover, um, the silence breakers this week, right? Right. Um, right. The the women on that cover were all powerful white women. And Tarana Burke, who actually started the Me Too movement about 10 years ago, was left off of that. She's a black woman. Um, Even when we heard Lupita Nyong'o talk about her um, experience with Harvey Weinstein, Mm -hmm. that um, interaction was sort of um, rebuffed by Weinstein as the one thing that was consensual um, relative to the other acts in which um, he was being accused. And so, um, you know, even in academia, there is rampant um, sexual abuse and harassment um, that just doesn't get talked about. And so I think that one of the reasons that this movement was so swift is because it involved people whose names we knew. Um, and that ignores all of the people who are sort of everyday people whose names we don't know that are experienced. Let me take some calls here to Penny listening in Gilbert, Arizona. Hi, Penny. How does this sound to you? Well, it's funny. I happen to be an academic. And this wasn't what I was going to comment on, but I just say that um, it's uh, one of the fears um, as far as how women are treated in academia as being in programs with all women uh, and not that if there's not a lot of tenure, you become sort of a female ghetto and treated a certain way. But but that's not actually what I wanted to comment on, mm-hmm. if that's okay. Sure. Um, I've been in male-dominated industries all my life. I was... Uh, commercial photographer. I'm from New York originally, but I'm, I'm here in Arizona now. And that was just the way it was. Guys were grabbing and harassing, and you learn quickly how to deal with it. Yeah. The one difference was maybe it's the women of my generation, because I'm a little older than some, but uh, maybe it was that in those particular fields, you knew how to cut it right away, cut them right down, right away, and, and make it clear where things stood. Um, I still think that's important. Um, I My daughter's a millennial. I don't see that same fierceness in them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what super concerns me, though, having been through a lot, is backlash from men in general. Because some of the women's complaints are absolutely so valid, so horrible, and I, I, I've been there. I know what it's like. But then... Summer, you know, he grabbed my my butt, okay? And when too many minor things start piling up, I just am watching the men around me. Um, Not that it's right to grab your butt, don't get me wrong, but I'm watching a lot of the men around me start going like, wait a minute, I can't even look at you a certain way. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Penny, I, I do see what you're saying, because I've been as I've been talking about this and in different places, I've been hearing a lot of this concern about are we going too far too fast? Ty, what would you say to that? I would say that, um, no, I think even any kind of touching that's unwanted uh, is assault, like part of your freedom and your ability to be an autonomous human being is that you have control over your body. I think what we're having a hard time dealing with is the reality of what sexual assault is. I still think we're trying to define it. And I have to ask, do we have the courage to actually face that? Yes, if you do touch my butt, that too is sexual assault. And are we prepared to make the changes we need to have in order to live in a world where a man or a perpetrator can't do that? So while I'm compassionate with the caller, I would push back and be compassionate and say, do we have the courage to really move into a reality where women are equal, women of all colors and all class 
uh, conditions? And do they absolutely have total control and power over their body? So even you can't even touch my butt, even if you want to. I, I think we have a call here that will speak to this as well to Tori in St. Paul. And Tori, it sounds like you're hearing hearing from some of the men in your life and the men that you work with. What are they saying? So because so I'm an attorney in St. Paul mm-hmm. and uh, so I've been hearing both uh, from colleagues and from our some clients of what can we do to fix this and it seems like the solution when it comes from men is men focused and so uh, what I've been hearing is well we can't have uh, men and women alone in a meeting together so a man and a woman uh, there always has to be three people in a meeting the, the Mike Pence solution yeah uh, and I feel like if the the men who are in control of these businesses are coming up with the sexual harassment solutions uh, that they aren't going to be focused on ending the harassment, but protecting the men. Jasmine, what do you think of that? Um, Well, I would counter and say that even if we have women involved in making these decisions, the likelihood that they're going to be uh, more strict or um, have some sort of deeper insight about what is and isn't acceptable behavior is um, unlikely. And that's because we're all socialized together. We do this um, community, like as a community, to say what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. So when you have the previous caller who says, you know, well, maybe we're going too far if, you know, somebody's grabbing a butt and you've got all these men who are um, having this extreme response saying, well, what am I allowed to do? That's because we have all been socialized to assume that men will behave in a sexual way with women if they are interested in them. Right. I mean, in some ways, Jasmine, what you're talking about there is this sense of identity about how men will act and how women will act and then how we'll act when the men act like that and blowing that up is i think what we're wrestling with here or just the fact that women will internalize the misogyny and they will perpetuate the power structure and oppress other women and i want to just add to that because i agree with jasmine that i want to be careful right i don't um, want it to um, negate into just simply talking about, you know, touching bottoms or butts. I'm thinking of my six-year-old who's probably giggling about mm-hmm. use, the use of that word. When we talk yeah. about how we're going to make a change, it's not just um, thinking about the physical act of sexual assault. We have to ask, what are all the other social positions and oppression of women that have made that physical assault possible? Because the physical assault is not physical. That is about power and control. So where are the other places in society where women have been historically oppressed and do not have access to power so that then it becomes okay to touch their body. Because I would argue before you even make that move to touch any part of a woman's body, you have already oppressed her financially, economically, socially, and historically in many places throughout the society. So we didn't get here overnight, but we're going to have to start the change. And the change is not going to happen overnight, but it can't just simply be reduced to the physical change. We have to talk about the position of women and how much power they have in our society. And Jasmine, that that's... Go ahead. I I didn't mean to interrupt. Go right ahead. Well, what I was going to add is that um, even those power structures are socialized, right? So we're we're socialized to expect that um, men have more power in particular situations and can use them um, to their benefit at any time. When um, uh, recently... um, 
Dr. Nasser, who was um, recently convicted of, I think, 130 counts yes. of uh, child abuse. In Michigan, against, right? Yeah. Yep, against um, Olympic gymnasts from um, the USA team. We saw this back and forth on Twitter a few weeks ago where um, one of the gymnasts had come forward and talked about her abuse at the hands of Nasser. And then um, Gabby Douglas came out and said, you know, while I support you, you have to dress a certain way and you have mm. to understand that men are going to behave this way. Um, and that's not unusual. You know, uh, some people were upset with her, but I think that more women um, than not have been raised um, to understand that men are just going to be men, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to starting to think about the ways in which those behaviors, starting from a very young age, are ingrained into men as acceptable. And it's one of the reasons why we haven't seen a lot of apologies, real, true apologies. Because they're not exactly sure what they've done wrong. You're listening to Flyover Radio from NPR News, our national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Flyover from NPR News. It's a national call-in show about who we are in turbulent times. This is a special episode of Flyover because we wanted to talk about how the allegations and the admissions of sexual harassment and misconduct are roiling, how we see one another, where gender and identity and politics fits in here. I'm asking you as you listen in to go to the phone and talk to me about whether as women you're drawing strength and confidence about your role and your value in the workplace, no matter where you are and what kind of work you do. And men, what's the discussion been like for you among friends and colleagues? Does this feel like necessary, yes, uncomfortable, but necessary change? One eight three flyover one You can reach me on Twitter at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R, and use that hashtag flyover radio. Back to the phones here to Cindy in Minneapolis. Hi, Cindy. What What's on your mind about this? How have you been thinking about it? Hi. Thank you for taking the call. Sure. Um, I, I think primarily just your question about if, if you're getting power from this or if you're moving forward. I think the main thing that it's shown to me is the need to analyze how I'm responding to some of the complaints and some of the different individuals that they're pointing fingers at because I'm trying to draw a line distinction between, oh, that, 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 that's beyond, and, and this isn't beyond. And I'm, I'm really afraid that I'm using my social cues to make decisions, and I'm trying to analyze myself and figure out, why are you reticent to say, that one's not okay, exactly. and this one is okay. Exactly. So. And, and thanks very much for the call, Cindy. That, that's good. Ty, I think you were, you were speaking to this before uh, just a moment ago where we were saying, can we feel the power to be able to feel comfortable in setting the boundaries in a way that we have not been accustomed to feeling like permission to do right yeah. before this? And I think that's hard to do, and I... Um, applaud the caller for even, you know, being honest to ask this question and identifying where she might not even trust her judgment. Because I think as was Jasmine was saying, we've all been socialized. And so it might be enough to say, how might we even attack changing the frame that we might not even exist in a structure that is capable of delivering uh, equality to 
uh, women when they've been sexually assaulted because the structure itself will never fully allow that. And I think that would take a bigger uh, paradigm shift. I think this is the beginning. And what could be a small example of that paradigm shift? I mean, I hate to wade into this water, but I think about the announcement of uh, Senator Franken's resignation mm-hmm. yesterday right. and all this discussion that he will be replaced by a woman. And I thought to myself, wow, imagine if the majority of um, lawmakers in Congress were women, what would the frame look like? Could they change the frame so that we can imagine what we would have to do to eliminate uh, sexism and its subsequent consequences like sexual assault? Yeah, and I do think that's the challenge. And I do think that um, it would be hard for us, but it doesn't mean that we don't try. We have to continue having these challenging discussions like we're having now. Call here from Trish in Tempe, Arizona. Hi, Trish. How are you hearing this discussion? And thanks for waiting. Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call, sure. too. Um, I find that um, as someone who has been sexually harassed, one of the things that I found so disheartening was the lack of sisterhood among women mm-hmm. to where it wasn't just me that it was happening to, but it was a couple other women. And so I said, hey, we don't have to take this. We need to stand up together. And guess what? Who took the fall? Me. So um, and this was several. This was probably 30 years ago. And so um, I think that even today that, yes, one person comes for one woman comes forward and a few other trickle in. But I think when it's happening, other women need to stand up for that woman and say, yes, we're not going to take it, even if it's not happening to me. The other women need to stand up and there needs to be some more of a camaraderie. Um, in this issue. Yeah, Trish, I am so glad you called because, Jasmine, I wanted to talk about some of what's happening here is strength in numbers, right? So the New York Times publishes a big story about Harvey Weinstein and then women around women who have had interactions with him uh, and then other women in other industries feel like they can speak. There's strength in numbers. But I also have to say some of the the very negative reaction has been coming from women, too. I mean, I've I've been the recipient of some of this. How do you figure in what, what Trish is raising here to where we're at? Well, it's because we all exist in the patriarchy, right? And um, we've seen this actually with Roy Moore and even with Donald Trump. You know, if um, if a man who has been accused of sexual assault comes out and is reticent um, and, you know, wants to, um, at the very, very least, at least acknowledge his involvement in um, these allegations, then, you know, that strength in numbers thing seems to work because more people come out and it seems like they're being a powerful voice to force this particular man out. Mm -hmm. But then if the man decides that I'm just going to deny, deny, deny in the face of a lot of evidence, even if I'm not offering any additional evidence, then it feels like there is a a set of women who um, find it very difficult to exist out of the sort of patriarchal understanding of what relationships with men should be like and are willing to have, you know, very negative, in some cases, vitriolic responses to accusations. We saw Roy Moore's wife get on TV and do um, an entire... Uh, speech um, and with a whole bunch of women behind yes, her that's right. basically saying, you know, that these women are liars and they don't know my husband and I can't believe that they would do something like this as, as though um, all of the evidence means nothing. And so I'm not surprised by that. I think that um, 
we should be careful to really examine where we see those strength in numbers and against what um, accusers. Ty, let me me just say this about um, Roy Moore's wife. That I kind of expect. I mean, that's that's unfortunately what I expect from the political arena. What I don't expect is the governor of Alabama to say, I believe the women who are accusing him. And yet, I'm still making the calculation that you cannot vote for a Democrat because that's how badly we need Roy Moore in the Senate. Absolutely. I mean, it does sadden me. It does shock me. But if you look at the historical perspective, it's what it it only makes sense. I mean, she as a woman said that she believed the accusers, but it was more important for her to have Roy in the Senate. So basically what she's saying is that those issues are more important than my equality as a woman. And as long as women continue to compromise their safety and their equality because they think there's something more important, whether it be white supremacy or these structural frames, this is a situation that you find ourselves in. And I think in a very sad way, it's a marker of how internalized our oppression is and how much we have accepted this framework that we will then shout down another woman who has experienced um, sexual assault. And statistically, right, one in four women and one in six men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. So there's a likelihood. I'm not saying that it's true. We don't have the facts. But imagine if his wife had to accept that he actually sexually assaulted or molested those victims. Then I would say as the writer, what about her own experience would she have to accept? It is a complete paradigm shift. And so it's easier for me to say no, because if I recognize Mm -hmm. that not only must I recognize the oppression of other women in my community, but I also have to acknowledge what was done to me. And we can see that justice takes a lot of courage and it's hard. I keep going back to Senator Franken and I said I wouldn't talk about this. So I'm using him as an example. And I apologize for the objectification. But you had so many women who were so mad that he resigned because of what it would do politically to the Democrats and the power of the Democrats in the United States. And I'm thinking to myself, but if you say you want justice, if you say you want equality for women, this is the price that you have to be willing to pay. But they rather pay the price of sexual harassment. Which one is more violent? So, right. and I think that. Oh, go ahead. No, well, no. I was just let, <laughs> let me add this from Twitter because I think Susan's right in here on this. She says, "I want to caution about cultural amnesia." And how we judge some folks looking backwards. And there's been some of this, too, especially women who navigated in icky arenas in a different time. Some use today's insights and standards to condemn how women chose to survive in those arenas. Susan, I hear you. Jasmine, you want to add before we go back to the phones? Well, what I was going to add is that... um women are very fractured as a group. I mean, I think that that's a a big problem that we're seeing here, right, is that we feel like we should be able to say we all want justice, so who cares about things like politics or power or money, Um, but that's just not the way it is. We're fractured as women by class, we're fractured as as women by race, by religion, um, and we're seeing all of those fractures in the responses to these allegations. Just some context on on what we've said about this before we take a call. Um, I want to note that Time Magazine, in choosing the Me Too movement for their person of the year, wrote in uh, in their cover piece about how this crosses career and social strata. And here's what they wrote. When movie stars don't know where to go, what hope is there for the rest of us? What hope is there for the janitor who's being harassed by a co-worker but remains silent out of fear she'll use the job she needs to support her children? For the administrative assistant who repeatedly fends off a superior 
who won't take no for an answer. I'd love to hear from you if you're in different kinds of work, maybe in male-dominated fields, or you're in a field where you just feel like you cannot speak up. How is this sounding to you? What's this discussion sounding like you to you right now? It's one eight three flyover one, and you can talk to me about it on Twitter at Carrie NPR and use that hashtag Flyover Radio. Tamajat in in uh, Maplewood. Hi, thanks so much for waiting. Thanks for um, taking my call. Sure. It's actually Najat. Ah, um, sorry about that. But no, don't worry about it. Um, I guess my issue with the whole movement is. When it comes to women of color or immigrant women who have moved to this country, uh, you know, with their culture intact, mm-hmm. is it doesn't sound like inclusiveness to me. Uh, because immediately when once I found out that the Time magazine has chosen the Me Too movement, but then I couldn't find the person that started this movement. And this is this is one of those things that are you know you, you are happy that it's happening, but at the same time. We have the intersectionality piece playing out in front of our eyes. Right. I guess my, my question to my other fellow white woman would be, how come you get to be the front lead of this organization? I mean, of, of this movement is speaking out against it, but demographically you elected um, our global in chief in the White House. So those are the two things that I can't at this point, like try to, what do you call it, um, consolidate. In, yeah, in my mind. You, you're uh, having a hard time kind of reconciling that. And, and uh, Naja, that, that's a really great point, because, Jasmine, that's exactly what came up in the wake of the Women's March. There, there, And I hope that conversation is still going on. OK, who is who's going to lead this? Does anybody really have to lead this? And how do we make sure this crosses a lot of boundaries? How do you think about it? Well, I think that we have to be open to hearing um, a diversity of voices, right? And that has been a bit of um, a a problem here is that we want to hear from Alyssa Milano. You know, we want to hear from Gwyneth Paltrow about their experiences, but we're not looking to the um, women of color, women of lower classes, women in... um, different industries other than Hollywood where there's sort of an illicitness to all of this. It makes it feel like tabloid fodder as opposed to things that are happening on the ground every day. And I think, you know, to Kai's point about um, changing the framework, that that's not going to happen until we start to identify these issues at every level um, as opposed to just at the very top. And I would agree. I just want to add to that intersectionality piece that then we can't just see sexual assault as just tied to attack on the body. It's not just the oppression of women, but women of color. And the fact that the discussion starts with a superstar or a movie star instead of a person of color or someone with less power, that to me is problematic. So I would argue how the discussion is being framed today. I would say it reflects the historical racism. I mean, women of color particularly have been historically viewed as sexually available, not seen as victims uh, and not believable. All these reasons that have been documented. And so as we talk about um, this issue, we can't escape the other issues that intersect with, intersect with it. And race would be one and class. You're listening to Flyover Radio and we're having this flyover special conversation in this Me Too moment. And you hear us wrestling with a lot of 
the rhetoric around it and what it means as men and women and the gender and identity and political sense of this. Ty Coleman is wrestling with this with us. She's a professor of English literature at St. Catherine's University. She writes about feminism and power and intersectionality. And Jasmine Harris joined us. She's the founder of the Hughes Company and a professor of sociology at Ursinus College in Philadelphia. Uh, Sharon in San Diego called to say, I appreciate the guest, but it's frustrating to me because I think there's a roadmap for men who say, can I even talk to you now? We can give men clear instructions that this is not okay. It's not blurry to me. Ty, I'm really grateful for Sharon for saying that because I've been saying in many of these discussions, I'm hearing from men who say, so I can't even greet you or I can never ask you out. Um, I think it's fairly clear with a uh, ask on a date or have an interaction. And when you hear no, it's no and move on. Do I have to be that simplistic? Maybe I do. Well, I mean, I I think that you're right. No means no. But I also want to acknowledge if that's the response or the pushback you get, that pushback is about power. I mean, it's similar when people talk about race or religion. Well, you know, it's just a racial joke. Like what? You know, don't exactly. you're blowing out of proportion. Right. You know? And I would say that that's the resistance of the power structure uh, to change. And I think it's up for us to hold the line however long it takes and have the courage to, to hold that line. And don't compromise that line. And I guess I want to say I don't want to be judgmental because that's a personal decision. But as many of your callers have pointed out so astutely, the moment we as individual women compromise that line, then we compromise the safety of other women. Let me get Dan in Mendota Heights in here. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for waiting. What are you what are you hearing here? Um, In a lot of my conversations with friends and family, uh, we all agree that this is a necessary movement that's paving the way for future good. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we hope it leads to is uh, more effective and clearly defined uh, channels for due process, because some of us feel like um, uh, a lot of this is happening through press release and it's relying on a lot of uh, public outcry and uh, public pressure to to make the change. And we think uh, if we have more clearly defined channels for these women to step into. Uh, It could potentially embolden some women's in that aren't in Hollywood or in these high profile cases to step forward and uh, band together and stand together. So, Dan, when you say channels, I mean, do you mean legal process or what specifically do you think is missing here? I I think legal processes is part of it. And I also think um, uh, maybe in some of these industries we need to uh, look at uh, how complaints and how these things come forward, because uh, like I said, some some of these things are coming through uh, new, you know, published in New York Times and, and stuff like that. So it it seems like it's uh, ah. it's it's difficult for a lot of people to give that a whole lot of credence yeah. or uh, really get behind it because it's uh, it, it seems like it's relying too much on the public outcry saying that this happened to us, this happened to me. Um, we feel wronged. We need you to be outraged and and do action for us. When mm-hmm. uh, some of us feel like it would be uh, more effective if there were more clearly defined uh, channels for these to go through, yeah. and we could learn better and 
stand behind these people and stand with these people uh, in, a, in a better way. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you've brought that up. Um, let me take that up here in just a minute and remind you that you're listening to Flyover Radio. It's a special conversation, special episode here of Flyover for the moment that we're in, what I'm thinking of as the Me Too moment. And we're asking you as women whether this national discussion we're having, and it's about gender and identity and sexuality and politics. Are you drawing strength and confidence from that? As a man, as Dan calls in here to say, well, what's the procedure? What kinds of questions are coming to mind? What does this sound like when you're with your friends and your colleagues, your other male friends and colleagues, and you're talking about this? I I think we'd be interested to know what this sounds like, too. one flyover one If you get a busy signal, call us right back. I want to hear from you. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to a special episode of Flyover in which we're talking about sexual harassment, how changes are coming to the way we work and socialize and interact in this Me Too moment. Ty Coleman with us from St. Kate's University here in the Twin Cities and Jasmine Harris with us as founder of the Hughes Company and joining us from Philly. And you, wherever you are thinking about what this Me Too moment is saying to you. Ty, I want to come back to you with what uh, Dan was asking about, saying a lot of this has been very public, but what about the channels for women that don't have access to the media? Absolutely. I thought it was a great question. You know, people say that equity says that people need different things in order to achieve equality. So when talking about women, I think that's a challenge because the majority of women don't even report. And there are cultural reasons, right, differences about marriage and religion, about communities, why people don't report. People don't feel believed, so they don't report. Not to mention, if you have women of color who are more subjective to institutional racism, they're less likely to trust institutions that they will take care of them, that they will solve uh, the problem for them. So I imagine as we move forward, these are the types of questions that we need to ask. So I imagine there has to be more research, more money, um, more people being a part of the conversation, more experts that are specific to the identities and intersections of women so we can identify those points to make that happen. But I would totally agree, especially, for example, for every African-American woman who reports sexual assault, they say that 15 don't. So, yeah, we have our work cut out for us, but I think we can do it. Interesting observation here from uh, columnist Michelle Goldberg, who's been writing in The Times on this moment. She says, but the revolution is smaller than it first appears. So far, it has been mostly confined to liberal-leaning sectors like entertainment, the media, academics, Silicon Valley, and the Democratic Party. It hasn't rocked the Republicans, corporate America or Wall Street, with some exceptions, because these realms are less responsive to feminist pressure. I want to go to a call here from Scottsdale, Arizona, to Ellen. Ellen, you work on Wall Street. Is that right? Or worked? I worked on Wall Street for most of my career. And I do have I was molested by a family member as a child. So I learned how to be silent very at a very young age. And I was in a male-dominated field all of my life. I actually chose it because at a young age, I recognized who had the control and the power, and I didn't want it not to be me Mm -hmm. after what I went through. Mm -hmm. So I intentionally picked a male-dominated field. And 
I experienced uh, harassment in every job with every company. Wow. In one, one way or another. And that's over 35 years of working in the industry. And, and, um, and in that, in those experiences, was it just, I mean, you basically understood to yourself that you would not be speaking out or this was going to impede your career? I'm a single woman. I was married for a short period of time, but I've been responsible. I paid my own way through college. I'm responsible for my all of my you know finances, and there was no way I was going to speak out. So, so do you think do you think I mean Michelle Goldberg making the point today in The Times that not much has changed in this uh, on Wall nothing. Street? You think that's right? No. Yeah. And yeah, because I I worked for a major investment bank uh, from 01 to 08 uh, when all of us got laid off. And there were continual dinners uh, taking the rating agencies and wining them and dining them. And often the evenings ended up at strip clubs. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, some of my women colleagues did go. I would never go. Um, you know, it's just against what I believe in. You've uh, you've it, raised a. a it, did you want to add something, Ellen? No, but it it was against what I believed in, but it also excluded me. Right. You've raised, I think, a good point here, Jasmine. And you're the founder of a company. There are going to be, air. I mean, I think maybe we'll know this is truly a a movement and not just a moment when it has penetrated a lot of these industries that have been so resistant to this. And, and I hope that happens. I, I guess I'm speaking like that, like it will, not necessarily. What, what do you think? Um, I think it will once we take sexual harassment as sort of informally a part of cultures, uh-huh. right? Um, what the last caller was talking about in terms of like uh, meetings ending up at strip clubs, that's a part of the culture of that particular business community. And that's not unusual. I think until um, we start to see people thinking about how you change the culture, and this is also related to the last caller's um, question about process, that a lot of these um, disciplines and business industries, there's not a clear sort of formal process um, for talking about these issues unless you experience something that we have defined as extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, and until that happens at, at every level, we're not going to be able to sort of change the frame, as, as Kai was saying. And I imagine that would be hard to do because, and I don't want to marginalize people's experiences. I want to honor and respect them. But we have to connect the sexual assault to the assault that happens in policy and procedure until we start to make the um, the ideology, right, the connection between the physical assault of women is connected to the construction of maybe capitalism or an American identity, not to say that everyone does it, but it's not a coincidence in 1776 when the Declaration of Independence was being written, not only did you have African Americans being enslaved, but you also had women who could not vote, who could not own property, who did not have rights to power. So the fact that we find this on Wall Street, to me, uh, that's not a surprise, although it saddens me. And I want to know, do we have that kind of reckoning to have the courage to really look at how the sexual assault and the oppression of women on every level was necessary to build the frame that we have. Listener here on Twitter, um, and you can reach me on Twitter, by the way, and use that flat, that uh, hashtag flyover radio. It's at Carrie NPR. A listener says uh, uh, she's a millennial and she says no hesitation to call out 
what is not acceptable when it comes to speech or action here. Hearing from, um, let's see, Jane. Oh, yeah, Jane in Phoenix, who says, I think all the press coverage has made it sound like everyone who's been accused has been tried. That's not an appropriate way for anyone to build a movement. And to the phones to Michelle listening in Phoenix, Arizona. What's your what's your experience with this, Michelle? Hi. So I've actually worked in a male-dominated industry. I'm Latina, so I certainly understand some of the uh, ethnicity issues coming to play. Look, I went to law school, mm-hmm. uh, practiced law, law, and found the most significant harassment that I experienced was not when I was representing Crane and Regan clients, which were the traditional testosterone-related industries, but the sexual harassment that was the most pervasive for me was by law school professors, law school deans, managing partners of law firms, wow. senior partners of law firms, and CEOs and COOs of multi-billion-dollar companies when I was an executive there. And for me as a professional woman who came from the inner city, who, who, who borrowed a quarter of a million dollars to go to law school... I couldn't risk. I was in Anita Hill's situation. I am Anita Hill in a Latina version. I could not risk all that I had sacrificed to get to the law firm, to get to be a corporate executive, because I know that that would have resulted in a different situation. And so for me, this is about power, because like I said, I did not experience it in 20 years working with what most people would consider you know, 500,000 men at a conference and 50 women, that's not where I experienced it. I experienced it in the corporate boardrooms with 10 people and 10 powerful men. Michelle, you know what else this reminds me of is so many of these Me Too stories uh, like yours are, and then I dealt with it, and I felt humiliated and embarrassed and shamed that I couldn't speak up about it, but I dealt with it. There are so many women who were in that situation. When I hear you go down the list of experiences here, I realized how many times you said, I have to make a calculation here. And and in the end, I'm I'm choosing, you know, a career that I've invested a lot of time and energy and money into. And maybe I don't know. Do you have the sense, Michelle, that that might be changing? I certainly think it's changing with younger millennial women and younger millennial men who recognize the boundaries that are appropriate and inappropriate. So I think that's a a gift that we've been given. But one of the things, the messages that I want to give to women Mm -hmm. is that you need not feel shame. You not need feel humiliation. This is not a result of you. You have not done anything to choose this. The men who have done this are men who are, who are, are abhorrent managers, abhorrent leaders, abhorrent CEOs. And this is not about you. This is about them. So empower yourself. Even if you make a choice that you wish you had not had to make, empower yourself because you need not feel humiliated for what they have chosen to do. Really glad you called, Ty. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, we can't hate people uh, for surviving. And that's why I say however we move forward, um, women always have to remain allied with one another. We can't tear each other down. Uh, But I think her point uh, underscores what I've been trying to say is that we have to see it as this is about power and control, but it's also about a construction of of identity. Um, The fact that we could take a man and ask, does a man have to go through the same experience in order to reach that height of a power and achievement shows the inequity. And why is that inequity necessary in order to live in the country that we do for the frame that we have? Jasmine, as I'm listening to this conversation and hearing the spectrum of experience, right, having been in law for 20 years or worked on Wall Street for 30 years, I, I, I'd love a, a sense uh, that maybe you have about how younger women 
are listening to this and what they're taking away from it. Is it clear to you yet? Do your students talk about this? Um, they do. And, and I'll say that, you know, we have an issue with sexual assault and harassment on this campus like most campuses do. And, and that's because this isn't necessarily a generational issue. I think the response to these t- types of allegations is a generational issue. And the way that people think about, well, did I have to deal with this? And was I able to handle it? And, you know, are people being too sensitive? That's the generational thing. But, um, how women feel about harassment is written into the way that we understand interaction with one another, regardless of gender. As I said before, women perpetuate this patriarchal structure just as much as men do, if not more. And so what a lot of the students on my campus have been talking about um, more openly is the prevalence of sexual assault and harassment on this campus, but also, you know, the types of responses that they get from the administration and the types of responses that they get even from their friends in terms of whether or not they should report this or whether, you know, people think that this particular guy is a good guy and you don't want to have him lose his scholarship or, you know, ruin his life. I was Um, sexually assaulted in college, and I received that response, and that was 15 years ago, you know, Mm. and so this isn't, um, I I don't think that it's particular to any generation. I think how people respond to it is particular to the generation, and yes, women of this younger sort of millennial generation are talking about it a little bit more, but I don't think that it changes how they understand it. What do you think, Ty? Yeah, I would add to that, um, that what I've seen in, in my amazing students is that, yes, they're very aware of it. They know their choices. But at the same time, there's this pushback to the lie that uh, feminism says that women are equal. They can have access. But that's not necessarily what they are experiencing in the world. And what I'm seeing sometimes is that that can create what anxiety or a place where young women are hurting themselves or they're feeling um, anxiety or they're um confused because what's being said is not necessarily what they're experiencing. And there's a contrast between those two things. And I would love not to put you on the spot, Carrie, but I would love to see that show where we have young women in that generation talking about their experiences because they would know better than me. Right. That that show is coming up on Monday at (laughs) 9 (laughs) a.m. on NPR News. And so I think... um, we failed them in some ways, mm. and I think it's up for us, and they are a part of this, but we have to work to save them and save ourselves because they see um, the lie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah Jasmine, <laughs> I, I am really struck by the way Ty phrased that because, you know, I, I think during the last election, we had a big conversation about what feminism is and how does it look to different women of different generations. And now when she talks about the lie... I hear that from women saying, why are we still dealing with this 25 years after Anita Hill? This isn't what feminism and and I'm not here to say blame feminism on this by any means, but it hasn't delivered uh, what I think we had hoped. Yeah, I think that's fair. It hasn't delivered uh, what it what it said it would deliver. And again, it's not blaming them, but the reality of what are the circumstances for young women now graduating and entering the workforce. Right. Jasmine, a thought on that. Yeah. 
it speaks to the strength of um, patriarchy and misogyny in American culture, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. we yeah. are still dealing with racism. We're still dealing with homophobia. We're having discussions right now about whether or not cake bakers have to, <laughs> you know, take clients for gay weddings. And it's 2017. It just shows the strength of the the way that we have structured society. And, you know, to Kai's point, historically, it's not going to change overnight. Women couldn't even have checking accounts in this country mm-hmm. before, you know, the mid-60s. And so what we're talking about changing something that has been so fundamental to American society for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it's not shocking then to have, you know, 53% of white women vote for Donald Trump even after he admitted to um, sexual abuse and harassment and has on many occasions, right? Um, and, and so I don't think that we're going to change overnight. Yeah, you know, right. historically, cultures take a very, very long time to change. Maybe this is the turning point where we start to have these conversations in more public discourse, sort of like we're doing today, and that continues, and it means something for long-term change. But you're still talking about generations because this sort of socialization stuff happens from birth, right? From a very young age, we, you know, when you're talking about babies flirting with women in the grocery store because they're smiling at them, mm-hmm. we, we start this um, understanding of the ways that men are supposed to interact with women that's rooted in patriarchy and misogyny um, from such a young age that it's going to take tearing down, you know, the whole patriarchal structure. And you're talking about long-term work. Right, and we have to be find a way to convince those of us who won't be here to reap the benefits of the work to be willing to do the work for those that are going to come after us. Kate uh, called from Phoenix, Arizona to say, I'm a twice Me Too. I moved from New York City as a professional. I reported a workplace violence issue. I was put on administrative leave and told to get a psych evaluation. This is exactly what women fear and why they don't speak up. She says the second time it happened, it went on for two years. I was fired. Now I'm working as a service industry, not a professional. Can't find a job. Let me grab one last call here from Janine in St. Paul. Janine, thanks so much for waiting. Tell tell me what you're thinking mm-hmm. about. Well, you were talking about how some pe- women, you know, we're hearing from the powerful positions. Yes. But I'm the mother of an almost 18-year-old who is a hostess at, at an upscale restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, her uniform is dressed nice. And... And the clientele tends to be older, um, you know, so she's not being harassed by her boss, but but she and the other hostesses who are all young girls, you know, 16 to, the, to 20 years old. And she's so uncomfortable when an old man will lean over the hostess stand and, you know, gra- take a peek down her dress. Yeah. And, you know, she's in that position where he's not her boss. But she, there, you know, the company depends on on the customers, and and so that feeling of powerlessness. You've got it. Um, I mean, and, my and daughter. Go ahead, Janine. Real, real quick, if oh, you I would. I was going to say, my daughter is is a feminist, and she's very outspoken, and you know, but she's still at that position of what do I do? And as her mom, you know, she's almost eighteen and wants to handle it, but at the same time. It drives me nuts, too, that, you know, my daughter's dealing with this. And how do the girls don't know what to do? I really appreciate the call. Ty, Jasmine, thank you so much for the conversation. 
Our producers are Suzanne Pico, Julia Franz, Jeffrey Besoy Mattis, and Jeff Jones. Our technical director is Eric Stromstad. Joffrey Wilson composed our theme music. I really thank you for listening and contributing to Flyover from NPR News. You can find more conversations just like this at flyoverradio.org, and you can reach me on Twitter at Carrie NPR, hashtag flyoverradio.